remain standing with me out of respect for God's word and turn to Ephesians chapter 5 as promised as we continue on in our series today. I said we would pause and linger yet over these verses for one more Lord's Day and turn our attention now away from the substance of what is sung and the reasons for why those particular songs are sung, that is the Psalms of the Old Testament Psalter today. And we are going to examine the issue of instruments and worship, and we're going to concentrate and work with this phrase here, singing with melody. Verse 19, here is the holy, infallible, inspired, and inerrant word of God, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your hearts to the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do plead with you that you would strengthen us to cast our eyes away from worthless things. And we know what worthless things are. They are things that are made from the corrupt desires and are the human inventions of the heart. Things that are not directed and commanded and taught in your word. And so, Heavenly Father, confirm within our hearts to have a theology and a worship which is not based upon the corruption of human wisdom and opinions and commandments of men, but a worship that is established and from your word. And so we pray that you would help us to understand what your word teaches now through the illumination and power of your Holy Spirit. This we pray through Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Everyone seems to know today that if you're going to have a thriving church, you must have cool music. Something I was just reading uh, last week confirmed that in my thinking. As I was reading an interview that was conducted with a young man who was just making his way into Reformed theology, and he was waxing eloquent about his love and his passion for the richness of the biblical theology of the Reformed churches. But then this young man confided in the interviewer that he had at least one problem with much of the Reformed churches and the Reformed tradition, and that was with its traditional worship music. And he explained that there was a particular church that he liked to go to to taste the hearing and the preaching of the word of God, yet he said that he showed up at least 30 minutes late for worship every Lord's Day morning because he wanted to skip the music, because he found it distasteful that the music was the old traditional hymns according to the old traditional instruments of the church. And so he said he stayed away from the worship portion of the service and came late to catch only the sermon. When you begin to hear language like that, you begin to realize what the issue is. It's not just the music, it's the tunes. Because there's a whole new sound of worship music that must be characteristic of the worship of the church in order to make it palatable for a whole new generation of young people It's about the tone of the tunes. And it all starts off with the kind of music that has the young man leading the songs, who has a gravelly sounding voice, who's singing softly. And then the light stroking of acoustic guitar strings starts picking up the pace. And finally, a rhythmic beat kicks in. The song unfolds with a simple melody and a punchy beat. And the lyrics begin to glide like a monotonous mantra. That's the kind of music you have to have. And if you don't have that kind of music, well, you just have to understand that the young people will not be interested in attending your service, at least for the worship portion. You see, what we're being told today is that we must construct music that suits the tastes of the spiritual consumer. And that ought to surely trouble us all. It ought to trouble us that some people refuse to come to worship until after the worship songs are over in order just to get the sermon because they don't like the music. It ought to trouble us even more that there's a whole swath of people out there, a growing number of people, who will skip out on the worship entirely and not even listen to the sermon at all because they don't like the music. Now all of this forces us to ask the question. And the question is this, has has music become an idol? 
has music become an idol in the modern church? And I would propose to you the very simple claim that yes, music has become an idol in the modern church. And it's not a new insight at all. In fact, it's an insight that was developed by the 16th century reformers when they fashioned this principle for the worship of the churches, that we may worship God in no other way than he has commanded in his word. And if we are to worship in any way in our worship that has not been explicitly commanded in the word of God or is not deduced by good and necessary consequence from the word of God, then we are worshiping God in an idolatrous way. Listen to what Ursinus says. There are two principled kinds of idolatry. The one is gross and palpable, as when worship is paid to a false god, which is the case when instead of or besides the true god, such worship as that which is due to him alone is given to something or object, whether imaginary or real. This form of idolatry is forbidden in the first commandment and also in the third. The other species of idolatry is more subtle and refined as when the true God is supposed to be worshipped, while the kind of worship which is paid unto him is false, which is the case when anyone imagines that he is worshipping or honoring God by the performance of any work not prescribed by the divine law. And this is the definition which was consistent and uniform throughout the Presbyterian and Reformed churches in the 16th and the 17th century. It is contained in absolutely every single confession of faith. We may worship God in no other way than is commanded in his word. That was the consistent application of the second commandment. And the reformers stood shoulder to shoulder without even a seam of daylight between them. To worship God in any other way than he commanded is idolatry. And the proposal that I make this morning is that the worship of God with musical instruments is idolatry. Because God has nowhere commanded it for the New Covenant Church in his word. Now, I realize that as soon as I stake out a claim such as that, that it will not win many friends. Most people today think that denying use of instruments and worships is not only odd and kooky and crazy, but also legalistic and pharisaical. And so what we need to do is carefully defend it. And I propose that we begin to defend it by looking at our passage here in Ephesians 5.19, where the Apostle Paul says that we are to sing and make melody with our hearts to the Lord. What we've already noticed as we've examined this particular text in the past, that what the Apostle Paul is doing in this participle clause is expanding and clarifying on the previous clause. In the previous clause, the Apostle Paul said, we are to speak to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. He makes it very clear there from that repetition of phrases, that piling up of terms, that he is appealing to the Old Testament Psalter. Those are the things that we are to speak to one another. And now here comes the second participial clause, and it clarifies the first. Particularly, it clarifies that speaking. Paul is saying there is a particular kind of speaking that we are to be engaged in. And that kind of speaking is singing and making melody with our hearts to the Lord. And that word for singing means to produce musical sounds or notes with the voice. Then secondly, the Apostle Paul makes it very clear that heart and voice are to be united in the praise of the Lord. Not just singing musical sounds or notations with the voice, but he says, with the heart. Very significant, the Apostle Paul would allude to the heart here because as we know in a biblical understanding of the human person, the heart is the nerve center. The heart is that from which all of the human person flows. It is the centerpiece of the person. It is the center of religious feeling and moral conduct. It is the vital human center of the person. And the Apostle Paul says it's not just enough that we sing with the voice. He says we must sing with our hearts to the Lord. The RPCNA study committee on psalmody puts it like this. The heart is the one instrument the Lord is concerned to see properly tuned in his church. It is the one instrument which all believers can make music to the Lord, even the deaf or the mute. 
the music that the Lord desires is that praise which comes with thankful hearts. So here Paul makes it very clear what is uh, uh, the instrument for new covenant singing. It is the heart. There are no trumpets, no harps, no lyres, no cymbals, no organs, no pianos, no guitars, no drums, no instruments. He says we sing with the heart and with the voice to the Lord. Paul clearly commands singing without musical instruments. But as soon as we say that, people are going to say, okay, but what about this vast testimony from the Old Testament about the use of instruments? You see, it'd be real easy to believe that this should be the way the church practices singing with heart and voice to the Lord if we didn't have this vast set of data from the Old Testament which very clearly talks about the church at worship using musical instruments. And so this morning, in order to ground our claim and make it credible in light of the whole teaching of the whole counsel of God, we're going to spend some time examining what the Old Testament scriptures taught about the use of instruments in worship in order that we might confirm this claim that we have staked out here from Ephesians 5.19, that the form of singing the New Testament is with the heart and the voice and without instruments. I'm going to develop a two-pronged argument. And the first part of our argument this morning is that instrumental music was introduced and used only by divine command. Instrumental music was introduced and used only by explicit divine command. Now, first of all, I just want to develop that generally. The first general thing I want to say is, and it's something that is very clearly taught in Scripture, that absolutely everything that took place within both tabernacle and temple was explicitly introduced by divine command and warrant. For instance, Exodus 25:40. This pertains to the tabernacle. The Lord said to Moses, "See to it that you make them after the pattern which was shown to you on the mountain." And see what he's referring to is all of the instruments, all of the implements, absolutely everything, the entire interior, the construction, the fabric of the entire tabernacle, the Lord says to Moses, had to be constructed only according to the pattern shown on the mountain. There was to be absolutely nothing in the construction or the makeup or the composition of the tabernacle or anything that was in it that did not come from express divine command. You will search the Old Testament in vain to find the Lord ever admonishing Moses or any of the leaders to exercise their creativity. Nowhere. Are we told to exercise our creativity when it comes to any aspect of the worship of the church? Now, secondly, you have a passage like 1 Chronicles 28. This deals with the temple. And here David says, All this the Lord made me understand in writing by his hand upon me. All the details of this pattern. Now, the summary here is very similar to the summary of Exodus 25, 40, when the Lord spoke to Moses. Here, David is saying he has received all of these instructions for the temple, the divisions of the priests, the implements that are inside, the decor, the structure, the dimensions, absolutely everything here in 1 Chronicles 28, David says, comes from the Lord by his hand upon him, and it was given to him in writing. Once again, David's wisdom and experience and creativity are not called upon in any way to contribute to what was going on inside the temple. Everything was to be ordered according to divine command. Now, as soon as we take both of those principles from tabernacle and temple, and we see that the principle does not change over the course of hundreds of years, God makes it very clear that absolutely everything that was done inside that sacred space was according to God's divine revelation and was not in any way mixed with human creativity or opinions or commandments. It was all to be directly from the Lord. That general point ought to lead us to be very careful to ask, well, what then was the role of instruments 
What then was the role of instruments within that sacred, holy space that was so strictly regulated by the command of the Lord? That brings us to instruments now very specifically. And as we think about the relationship of instruments to the tabernacle, there's basically just one passage, and that's Numbers 10. Numbers chapter 10, we see divine instructions about instruments in the tabernacle. Verse 1 and 2, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Make yourself two instruments of silver, of hammered work, you shall make them. Notice, first of all, it is the Lord speaking to Moses. Second of all, notice that the Lord says to Moses, make. See, he didn't say to Moses, hey, what do you think about instruments in the tabernacle? What do the people say about instruments in the tabernacle? What kind of instruments are they using in the thriving, successful churches around you? What the Lord says to Moses is, you make, and then he's very specific, two trumpets of silver. And then he gives the, the manufacturing instruction there to be hammered work. You see, he doesn't say, well, find the best instruments you can get by mail order from Egypt, and those will work. He says very specifically to Moses, you are to only have trumpets. There are only to be two. There will be silver. There are to be hammered work. And I'm going to tell you exactly how to make them. And then you drop down to verse 10. The Lord tells Moses when they are to be used. In your appointed feasts, on the first days of your month, you shall blow the trumpets over your burnt offerings and over the sacrifices of your peace offerings. Now notice here that the Lord gives further instruction about those instruments. He says where they are to be used. They are not to be used any old place. They are to be used only in the tabernacle. And he prescribes the timing of their use. They're not to be used on every Sabbath gathering. They are to be used only, he says, on the first days of the months. And he says, you shall blow them over the burnt offerings and the peace offerings. They weren't there to set the mood. They were not there to give people an emotional uplift. They were not to create an atmosphere of intimacy with the Lord. They were to be used only over the burning of the sacrifice, period, by the priests in that sacred space, and only while the sacrifices were being burned. That's it. We have no other instruction about their use, and then for almost 500 years, there is nothing but radio silence about instruments and worship. So they were hardly ever used, there were only two of them, and they were only used by the priest in the specific space while the sacrifice was being burned up on the first days of the month. Now, the next passage, which speaks about instruments that I want to look at, is 2 Chronicles 29. 2 Chronicles 29.25, because this sort of leapfrogs over uh, a substantial amount of narrative about instruments that we find in 1 Chronicles, but this text helps position our understanding of things that come before it. Because here you get a lot more information about what David was up to. And it's interesting here that this particular narrative is um, about an incident roughly 300 years after David's rule. So this is nearly a thousand years after the instructions we received about instruments in the tabernacle in Numbers chapter 10. But here's what's key here. I'm going to dig out a few things and then we'll use that to guide us through what the rest of First Chronicles says about instruments. In verse 25, we're told that Hezekiah stationed the Levites in the house of the Lord with cymbals, harps, and with lyres according to the command of, the da of David, of Gad the king seer, of Nathan the prophet, for the command was from the Lord through his prophets. Now, look at that. It is nailed down here. Hezekiah is not inter introducing uh, cymbals, harps, and lyres into the worship because the people said, hey, this would be a great idea. We could get a lot of people to show up to worship if we just introduce, you know, some peppy new instruments in there to spice up the singing. Very clearly that these instruments are introduced 
according to the command of David, of Gad the king's seer, of Nathan the prophet, for the command was from the Lord through his prophets. Talk about the Department of Redundancy Department. You couldn't miss it. This, uh, this uh, introduction of instruments into the house of the Lord, into the temple and its worship, is so explicitly grounded in divine command, you cannot miss it. And then we're told these instruments were the instruments of David in verse 26. The Levites stood with the musical instruments of David and the priests with the trumpets. Now notice the distinction there. You have the instruments of David and the trumpets. Now we already know the trumpets were introduced by divine authorization uh, by, uh, by, um, by the hand of Moses under the direction of the Lord in Numbers 10. But these extra instruments, which are referred to cymbals, harps, and lyres, are according to David's command. These are David's instruments. These are instruments which the Lord specifically commanded David to use in the temple. So notice here that authorization comes from the Lord. There is a command from the Lord. There is an institution from the Lord to use these particular harps, lyres, and cymbals in the house of the Lord at a particular point in the worship. We'll get back to that in a moment. But notice here, there is no seeking preferences of people. You know, some people say, well, you know, that old piano and organ stuff, it's just traditional. Uh, and we need to catch up with the times here in the 21st century. Uh, we need to put aside these organs and pianos because nobody listens to them. I had the argument put to me in a very interesting way one time when I was talking with a, a pastor from Calvary Chapel. And he was, he was basically ripping on the church that I was going to and pastoring at the time because he said... Uh, we were using uh, organ to accompany the singing. He says, just turn on the radio and see how many channels you can find where you hear organ music playing. He says, you people need to catch up with the times if you want to, to reach people for Jesus. But you see, his point is, the instruments were sort of um, a way to, to entrap people or to entice people to come to the worship of the Lord. And it's very obvious that they aren't suitable to the tastes of men in general today. So what you do is, because they're not suitable, you find out what is suitable, and that just happens to be today in our culture, uh, drums and guitars. That's what you use. But it's not always so ironclad as that, because as I had a friend in seminary, his name was Tyler, he said, and he grew up in the Dutch tradition with the loud organs playing, he said uh, he hated all of the guitars and drums and all that stuff, because he said when he heard the organ playing in the church, he knew that his God was big. So that was the argument for the organ. But you see, I want us to notice here that the instruments are not used because... They conform to the preference or the taste or the desires of the people. All of the instruments that are employed in the worship of the house of the Lord are used only because God gave an explicit divine command to use those and no others. That's it. So that's, that's the first thing to notice from the biblical record about instruments. They're introduced by divine command and the very instruments are not a matter of human preference or cultural <coughs> tastes or what is popular, only what God prescribes. Now, you look at that and you work your way backwards now into texts and chronicles about instruments. I'm just going to read off a series of them here. Just uh, listen to the narrative about <coughs> the use of instruments in the worship. First of all, in First Chronicles 6, it's sort of introduced out of the thin air that instruments and service of song is happening in the house of the Lord. Verse 31, we're told there are those whom David appointed over the service of song in the house of the Lord. And they ministered with song before the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, until Solomon had built the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. So here we learn about an order of Levites, and it probably comes up here because uh, this is at the end of a genealogy about Levites. And so we're told what they were doing at, um, or before the tabernacle. We learn about their ministry and song. Then you move forward to First Chronicles 15. You learn about instruments there. David spoke to the chief of the Levites to appoint their relatives, the singers, 
with instruments, musics, music, harps, lyres, loud-sounding cymbals to raise sounds of joy to the Lord. This is a particular occasion of the Ark of the Covenant being uh, led in procession up to Jerusalem from Gibeah. Then you come into 1 Chronicles 16. You have more reference to instruments. We're told that David appointed some of the Levites as ministers before the Ark of the Lord to celebrate, to thank, and praise the Lord God of Israel. Asaph the chief, the second hymn Zechariah, then Jael, Shimmerah, Jehalel, Madaliah, Eliad, Benaiah, Obed-Edom, and Jael, with musical instruments, harps, lyres. Also, Asaph plowed, played loud-sounding cymbals in Benaiah and Jehazael. The priest blew trumpets continually before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. Here now we are told that the instruments are employed in this very specific case of being played before the Ark of the Covenant. We, so we just have more breakdown here in terms of who was assigned duties and what they were assigned to do. This is obviously a development over Numbers chapter, chapter 10. And uh, of course I'm having us read backwards now from Second Chronicles 29 because all of this is being implemented according to that revelation that David received. We just didn't know about how it occurred precisely until we move forward in the work of Chronicles. First Chronicles 23, there's some more instruction about uh, Levites being used to praise the Lord with instruments. Uh, we're told in 1 Chronicles 23 about the priestly division of labor in the temple. And then in verse 5, uh, specifically, 4,000 were praising the Lord with instruments, which David made. Now notice that language there. It's, it's consistent with 2 Chronicles 29-26. Uh, Both passages reference the instruments that David made. Now, why did David make those? Well, David made them... Because he was commanded. He received a pattern from the Lord. You can just tie all of this in with another passage I haven't had us turn to. But it's, I, I, I just read off earlier. It's First Chronicles 28 where David specifically says all of it was made to, uh, was made, he, he was made to understand in writing by the hand of the Lord. So the instruments uh, were directed by divine command to be used in worship. The, the kind of instruments and when they were to be employed, all of it comes together according to divine command. So our first point here is just to demonstrate that this command was given by God to David to add to those first set of instruments, the trumpets, which were prescribed. And this particular policy was binding upon Israel throughout all successive generations until the temple was destroyed. I'm just going to read off a series of texts to show you uh, this refrain that you read throughout the Old Testament from, from the time David received this command until the temple's destruction. This was the binding order for Israel. Second Chronicles 7, Solomon dedicates the temple of the Lord. And here we learn, verse 6, the priests stood at their posts, the Levites also, with the instruments of music to the Lord, which King David made for the praising of God. Second Chronicles 23.18, when Jehoiada led a restoration after the death of Ataliah, he restored the Levitical priests to their proper functions according to the order of David. We've already seen Second Chronicles 29.25, where Hezekiah stationed the Levites in the house of the Lord with cymbals and harps and lyres according to the commandment of David. Second Chronicles 35, 4 and 5. After apostasy, Josiah restores worship according to the command of David. Ezra 3.10, after the return out of Babylonian captivity, Zerubbabel restored temple worship according to the ordinance of David. Nehemiah 12, 34. 45 to 46, 600 years after David, we are told that they restored the worship according to the command of David. So it's very clear now, as you look at the biblical record, two things I really want to drive home in our thinking. Instruments were introduced into the worship of the Lord by divine command only. And then number two, the instruments that were used in the worship were only the worship, the instruments which God prescribed. And then finally, 
once God gave those commands, those commands were binding upon all generations. They had uh, no warrant to become creative, add to the instrumentation by saying, well, you know, God has authorized these instruments, so obviously he's not imposed in principle to instruments, so we'll just add to the worship whatever instruments we like. Only these and these only were used in the worship of the Lord. Now, secondly, the instruments were part of the typological system of worship, which passed away. One, we know the instruments of the Old Testament were used by divine command. Now, number two, we're going to demonstrate from Scripture that these instruments were a part of the typological system. And now, once they are fulfilled, they have passed away. And to make that case, I just want to show us here, first of all, uh, a couple of things about the instruments in the tabernacle to help begin to tie the argument together. In Numbers chapter 10, we already alluded to this, this is a passage where the Lord commands the use of two particular instruments at a particular time. First of all, we learn in verse 8 in that passage, only Aaron and his sons were to play the instruments. Verse 8, the priestly sons of Aaron shall blow the trumpets, and this shall be for you a perpetual statute throughout your generation. Notice the Lord did not take sign-ups. He didn't ask who wanted to participate. He didn't ask who would like to use their gifts in the worship by playing instruments. It was a sign by divine command that only the Levites would play the instruments. Then secondly, those Levites in that sacred space of the tabernacle only played over the sacrifice in verse 10. Now, what we take from that is that the instruments are inseparable from the sacrifice because the only time the instruments were used in the worship in the tabernacle was over the sacrifice of the burnt offering and only on the first days of the month celebrations. So you have a typological people playing in a typological place in connection with typological sacrifices. That's the beginning point of the introduction of instruments into the tabernacle worship. You're going to see the very same pattern unfold when it comes to the temple. Second Chronicles 29 again. Second Chronicles 29.25. Notice that Hezekiah stations Levites. And he stations them in the temple. Again, it's not open for volunteers or sign-ups or the gifted. It is only given to the Levites. Second of all, only in connection with the sacrifices, verse 27 and 28. Hezekiah gave the order to offer the burnt offerings on the altar. When the burnt offerings began, the song to the Lord also began with the trumpets, accompanied by the instruments of David, king of Israel. While the whole assembly worshipped, the singers also sang, and the trumpets sounded. All this continued until... The burnt offering was finished. Now, you couldn't make it more explicit if you tried. The writer makes it very clear in verse 27 that it was only when the burnt offering began to be offered that the instruments began. Then we're told when the offering occurred, the instruments began to play. The singing began to, uh, to connect with the sacrifice and it continued until the offering was finished. That until, that preposition until, implies within it a limit. Until, right up to the point that the sacrifice was entirely demolished and burnt up on the altar. Once that happened, the instrument ceased playing. You say, well, that's a lot maybe to imply or infer from the word until. And I say, okay, fine with me, look at verse 20. 29, at the completion of the burnt offerings, notice now they're done, the until is, is up, now the time is up, the offering has been consumed, the offerings were complete, the king and all who were present with him bowed down and worshipped, moreover King Hezekiah and the officials ordered the Levites to sing praises to the Lord with the words of David, so they sang praises and they bowed down and worshipped. Notice here, once the burnt offerings are completed, we have the sung praises, but we have no instruments. 
Again, this reinforces the principle that we just learned from Numbers chapter 10, verse 10, that the instruments accompanied the sacrifice. The instrument and the sacrifice were absolutely inseparable. You see, and as soon as the sacrifices consumed, the instruments stopped, but notice, the praise did not. The writer goes out of his way to make it very clear that there were sung praises after the burning of the sacrifice, but he also makes it clear that they sang praises with joy with the words of David and they bowed down in worship and he says there was no provision made for the use of musical instruments. Couldn't be more clear. This was the binding statute. The instruments were inseparable from the sacrifice. Once the sacrifice stopped, the instruments stopped. You cannot miss the association. You have typological priests in a typological place, tabernacle and temple, with uh, playing instruments in inseparable connection with typological sacrifices. And, and, the, and the text already is helping us see where it's all going. Because it says once those sacrifices which are forward-looking in nature cease to be burned, the instruments ceased with it. Now there can be no doubt in view of the New Testament those types and shadows are fulfilled. There can be no doubt. The Apostle Paul tells us, Colossians 2.16, he says, No one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or respectable to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. Things which are shadow. Why is it that Christians are no longer to be judged with regard to food or drink or kosher diets or Old Testament festival days or new moons, which, by the way, were the first day celebrations where the instruments were used in inseparable connection with the sacrifice? Why aren't you to be judged? Well, Paul says they are shadow. Substance, he says, belongs to Christ. The shadows, he makes it very clear, have passed away because the reality that they were all pointing to was Jesus Christ. The pious and godly worshiper always brought his faith and connection with his worship and was always looking forward to what these things represented. Paul makes it clear when the body comes, faith attaches not to a shadow, practice attaches not to a shadow, but to reality. To Christ. If the sacrifice passed away, the festival day in which the sacrifices were offered passed away, then it must follow that the instruments were used in connection with the day and in connection with the sacrifice also passed away with the fulfillment. Then there's Hebrews 13. Then there's Hebrews 13. The book of Hebrews, as you know, was written to Jewish converts who were struggling to maintain their faith in Christ. They were pining away for the shadowy. They were pining away for the tangible worship experience of the temple. They were longing for the external husks of the shadows and the types. And so the preacher writes to these people to exalt Christ and his priesthood and his sacrifice. And repeatedly throughout the book of Hebrews, the preacher constantly is showing that there is a connection between the types and the shadows and the fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And the connection is such that once Christ comes and he offers the final and climactic and definitive sacrifice, the old has been swept away. And to go back on that is to turn back the clock on redemptive history and pretend that Jesus didn't come. Now he gets very specific at the end of the book. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 15. He says then, through him, that is Jesus Christ. That is the great high priest that he has been preaching about. Let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of the lips that gives thanks to his name. Notice here, he accents through him, that is through Christ, through the mediation of this priesthood, which speaks greater things than that of Levi. Typological priesthood set aside. Through him, through his blood, not the blood of bulls and goats. Let us offer up a sacrifice of what? Of praise. And then we're told specifically what it is. 
when he says, that is. That is a clarifying device. He says, offer up the sacrifice of praise. That is. He's making it painfully clear. You can't mistake what he's saying. He says, this is what the sacrifice of praise is. What? The fruit of the lips that gives thanks to his name. Now, they say you learn something new every day. And if that's the case, I did last week too. Because as I examined that phrase, the fruit of the lips, I found something I'd never seen before. In the Hebrew that it translates from Hosea 14.2, it does not say fruit of the lips. It says fruit of calves. In other words, calves are put for the sacrifices and the heifers and the calves and the sheep and the goats of the ceremonial system. In other words, we couldn't make it more clear that the fruit of the lips, which is being expressed in the Psalms of Thanksgiving, are now the sacrifice. And what accompanies it? Guitars, drums, cymbals, harps, lyres, synthesizers, xylophones, violins. <coughs> Oboes, flutes. No. The lips. The lips are the instruments which accompany the praise. It couldn't fit better then with Ephesians 5.19. Remember, singing with the heart. And singing is the vocalization of musical notations. And that uses the lips as its instrument to express the praise. You see, the sacrifices are done. And because the sacrifices are done, the instruments which were inseparable with those sacrifices are done. But praise and the duty of praise continues. The fruit of the lips, which is the song of praise and thanksgiving to God it continues no instruments are commanded to replace the typological instruments it's all fulfilled now what I want to do is spend a couple of minutes here checking our work I want to spend a couple of minutes here checking our work because remember as soon as you say this to people they think you are the craziest kookiest most peculiar person in the world they say this is outrageous this is outlandish no one has ever heard of singing to the lord without instruments remember that that's what everybody says let's check our work clement father of alexandria second century the one instrument of peace the word of God alone by which we honor God is what we employ. We no longer employ the ancient psaltery, trumpet, timbrel, and flute. Origin, early third century. The katara is the act of soul. The psalterian is the pure mind. The musical instruments of the old covenant understood spiritually are applicable to us. The organ is the church composed of contemplative and active souls. Eusebius, second century. He says, of old, at the time of those of the circumcision were worshiping with symbols and types, it was not appropriate to send up hymns to God with the Psalterian and Kithara. But we render our hymn with a living Psalterian and a living Kithara with spiritual songs. The unison of voices of Christians would be more acceptable to God than any musical instrument. John Chrysostom, the greatest preacher of the ancient church, instead of organs, we may use our bodies to praise him with all. Instruments appertain not to Christians. Thomas Aquinas, the greatest theologian of the Middle Ages, says, but our church does not make use of musical instruments such as harps and psalteries and the divine praises for fear of seeming to Judaize. John Calvin, the patron saint of the Reformed, in a word, musical instruments were in the same class as sacrifices, candelabra, lamps, and similar things. Those who take this approach, who introduce instruments into worship, are reverting to a sort of Jewishness as if they wanted to mingle the law and the gospel and thus bury our Lord Jesus Christ. Peter Martyr Vermilly, perhaps the greatest theologian of the 16th century, musical organs appertain to the Jewish ceremonies and agree no more to us than circumcision. The Geneva Bible, marginal notes on Psalm 150, 
exhorts the people now rejoice in praising God. It says he makes mention of those instruments by which God's commandment were appointed in the old law. But under Christ, the use thereof is abolished in the church. David Piraeus, professor and theologian at the University of Heidelberg in the 17th century, commenting on 1 Corinthians, says, In the Christian church, the mind must be incited to spiritual joy, not by pipes and trumpets and timbrels with which God formerly indulged his ancient people, but from the heart. Gespertus Fuchus, an ecclesiastical poly, 17th, polity, 17th century Dutch theologian, says that uh, instruments savor of Judaism or a worship suited to a childish condition of the Old Testament economy. There might with equal justice be introduced into the churches of the New Testament the bells of Aaron, the silver trumpets of the priest, the horns of the jubilee, harp psalteries and cymbals with Levitical singers, and so the whole cultus of that economy or the beggarly elements of the world according to the words of the apostle in the fourth chapter of Galatians. George Gillespie, 17th century Scottish theologian and commissioner of the Westminster Assembly in his assertion of the government of the Church of Scotland says the Jewish church, not as it was a church, but as it was Jewish, had a high priest typifying our great high priest Jesus Christ. As it was Jewish, it had musicians to play upon harps, psalteries, cymbals, and other musical instruments in the temple. 18th century American pastor and theologian Jonathan Edwards in his work Charity in Its Fruits says, Harps and cymbals and other instruments of music were of old made use of in praising God in the temple and elsewhere, but these lifeless instruments could not be said to give praise to God because they had no thought, no understanding, or will, or heart. John Wesley, founder of Methodism, well-known 18th century British revivalist. I have no objection to instruments of music in our chapels, provided they are neither heard nor seen. <laughs> 19th century Scottish theologian and pastor, Dr. James Begg, said, Can he made for the use of incense, priests, sacrifices, indeed of the whole temple season, as for those of instrumental music and Christian worship? Thomas Peck, 19th century minister, Presbyterian Church of the South, professor of Union Theological Seminary. Let the papists who believe in temples, priests, and sacrifice stick to their organs. Let not the freemen of the Lord who have boldness to enter into the holiest of all through the blood of the Son of God who has passed into the heavens borrow their pitiful machinery. We prefer the synagogue to the temple. Finally, 19th century Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon rejected instruments saying, praise the Lord with harp. Israel was at school and used childish things to help her to learn. But in these days when Jesus gives us spiritual food, one can make melody without strings and pipes. We don't need them. They hinder rather than help our praise. People of God, for the first 1,000 years of the church's existence, it's absolutely safe to say there were no instruments used in the worship of God anywhere. The first 1,000 years. You say, oh, you're just cherry-picking the evidence, Pastor Sautel. Okay, how about this quote? From Christianity Today, which is certainly not on our side on this issue, Unaccompanied and vocal music continued to be the norm of the Christian worship for centuries. Then in about the 10th or 12th century, Western Christians began to use the organ in the liturgy. By the 15th century, organ music was widely accepted in the Roman Catholic West, but it never caught on in the Orthodox East. Obviously, you know that at the time of the Reformation, the organs were nailed shut. The Protestants, the Reformed, the Presbyterians did never countenance the use of instruments in its worship. What I want you to know, people of God, as I went through that long list, is that it's not just a handful of fanatics and madmen who hold this position, which is precisely what you are taught to believe. This is precisely how you are taught to feel when you tell people, I go to a church where we sing the Psalms only, and that's bad enough. You don't even use a piano? I've been asked so many times. As if it's the most absurd, kooky, strange thing that's ever been told about a church anywhere that it would sing the Psalms without any instruments at all. 
But I want us to be convinced that when we sing in, when we sing without instruments, we stand shoulder to shoulder with the church throughout the ages. Instruments were never introduced into the church because of high orthodoxy and soundness of doctrine. No theologian of significance, and I repeat that, no single theologian of significance throughout the history of the church ever called for the use of instruments. Let me repeat that. No single theologian of significance ever called for that. That ought to make people be sober and take measure of their practice. Instruments only came into the church through pragmatism and man-centered wisdom and worldliness. By not using instruments, we have violated no biblical law. We have not turned against the church. We have not devised a peculiar practice. We've not carved out an opening to bring division in the church. When we sing a cappella without instruments and worship, we stand with the vast majority of the church throughout all ages with the greatest minds and the towering intellects of the church. We do this. We show our solidarity not only with the apostles, but all of the churches throughout the history of the church. It's not peculiar. It's not strange. It's not kooky. You see, the argument I gave you was not lost on the brightest minds and theologians in the history of the church. Never. This has been the position of the church for hundreds and hundreds of years. And how tragic it is that the whole Reformed and Presbyterian church of our day is ashamed, ashamed of the practice of the church throughout the ages. And it tramples underfoot the testimony and practice of the most sound theologians and teachers and churches throughout the history of the world. And it's traded it all in for syrupy, emotional, revivalistic, shallow, empty, inferior, unbiblical, instrumental music. What a massive departure. And all at a time when we're told that we have a generation of young people who are looking for something authentic and traditional to root their spiritual experience in. And we're pointing them to the revivalism of the 19th century. And now they have bought into a form of music that's at best patterned on the styles of of Hollywood with its gaudy, silly, trivial, emotionally effeminate music. People won't even go to reform preaching because the music is traditional. Well, it's not traditional. It's a very new tradition, and it's one without basis in Scripture or the history and the practice of the church. The second thing that confirms our interpretation is the regulative principle of worship. You all know what that is, that we are not to worship God in any other way, and he's commanded in his word. But here's the thing that I want to drive home for us this morning. What is the concern that drives the regulative principle? That's what ought to grip us here this morning as we think about it in relationship to the issue of instruments in worship. What is the concern that drives the regulative principle which says we may not worship God in any other way than he is commanded in his word? And that concern is so ably and carefully developed by the obligation of the laws as it's unfolded in the exposition of the second commandment in the Westminster Larger Catechism. Question 108 says, what are the duties required in the second commandment? The duties required are the receiving, observing, and keeping pure and entire all religious worship and ordinances as God has instituted in his word, and also disapproving, detesting, and opposing all false worship. That's the duty. Here are the sins that are to be forbidden in the second commandment. The sins forbidden in the second commandment are all devising, counseling, commanding, using, and in any wise approving any religious worship not instituted by God himself. All superstitious devices corrupting the worshiping of God, adding to it or taking from it, whether invented and taken up for ourselves or received by tradition from others though under the title of antiquity, custom, devotion, good intent, or any other pretense. And here are the reasons. The reasons are next to the second commandment. I, the Lord, thy God, 
am a jealous God. His fervent zeal for his own worship, his vengeful indignation against all false worship as spiritual whoredom, accounting the breakers of this commandment such as hate him and threatening to punish them unto diverse generations. Those are the reasons. People of God, I hope we sense the weight and obligation of the law. This is the driving concern of the regulative principle. This is what it seeks to capture, is the law requires receiving, observing, and keeping pure all worship. The law requires disapproving, detesting, and opposing all false worship. The law forbids devising, counseling, commanding, using, and any wise approving any worship that God himself has not instituted. And the reasons, you see, this is the point of it all. Here are the reasons. This is why we are so adamant about this regulative principle. Because the God who we worship is jealous. And he has a fervent zeal for his worship. And he has a revengeful indignation against false worship. And he accounts as the breakers of his commandments those that hate him. Imagine, imagine how this should restrain those who claim they hold to the confession and the regulative principle and the exposition of the second commandment. Imagine how that should restrain us from daring to desecrate the worship of God, knowing that it is enforced by a jealous, vengeful God who counts those who desecrate his worship by adding what he has not commanded as those who hate him. Imagine it. How perplexing it is. How perplexing it is that the Presbyterian church, the vast, vast, 99% of the confessional Presbyterian church today does not have an ounce of shame or a bit of fear or trepidation about innovating in the worship of God, even though it claims to believe that it worships a jealous God who's vengeful and full of indignation and accounts as those who add to his worship as if they hated him. It's not a minor issue. It is not a minor issue. And it is one that we as his people must lovingly debate. We cannot compromise. We cannot accept for the sake of pragmatism and convenience the unholy desire for worldly success. And it's okay for some churches to do it because after all, they're reaching people for Jesus. We have to stand firm. And we have to believe that there will only be a revival in the worship or rather than the Presbyterian Reformed churches in the world more broadly, when there is a revival and commitment to worship that God has instituted. You say, well, it sounds like you've lined up your ducks according to how the choir would preach it, but there's got to be some objections. There's got to be some objections. I'll give you two this morning. The first objection to the position that we've so carefully outlined is that of circumstance. Our old friend, Mr. Circumstance. We brought it up and we talked about the Psalms and this was the great aha argument for people who couldn't find any warrant in the word of God for devising their own commands. Finally came up with a, a justification for man-made songs. Circumstance, of course, allows it. And of course, the language comes from the Confession, chapter 1, paragraph 6, which says there are some circumstances that are common to human societies. We don't need explicit command or warrant from the, from the word of God for it. See, this is the great aha argument. This is the way out for people who've listened to the exposition of the law and said, okay, we understand, we understand that the Old Testament prescribed uh, those instruments for their use with the sacrifices. But there's a loophole here. Circumstances. We need to see, and we need instruments to help us see. Circumstance permits the use of instruments. Well, here's what George Gillespie says a circumstance is, and he is in a position to know since he was a Scottish commissioner to the Westminster Assembly and he helped write the Catechism and Confessions. 
He says, I know the church must observe rules of order and conveniencing the common circumstances of times, places, and persons. But these circumstances are none of our holy things. In other words, he's saying these circumstances are not the elements of our worship or even how we worship. They are merely about such providential arrangements as time, where will we meet, and persons. And of course, we don't just have to take Gillespie's opinion for it. We can refer to the decision of the parliament which called the Westminster Assembly itself. On 9 May 1644, the parliament passed a binding civil ordinance for the speedy demolishing of all organs. And it says, none others hereafter shall be set up in their place. You see, if circumstances permit it, then it was entirely lost on the people who knew the theology of the confession, who wrote the theology of the confession, and were in the position to enforce the theology of the confession. So you ask yourself, what's more credible? This modernistic argument, which is a loophole in the law, which finds the aha justification of circumstances, or the people who were there, who wrote it, and who applied it. There's one other argument which does have the force of a gotcha argument. One other argument which feels like a real gotcha. And that's the argument from instruments referred to in the Psalms themselves. Now this is a great grasping at straw argument. It's the argument of last ditch. Because once you understand how to defeat it, you can't understand how anyone would ever offer it. But it was used by one of the brightest minds the church has ever known, Gordon Clark. He said, on one occasion, I attended a Covenanter church for several Sundays. The auditorium was filled to capacity. Singing was vigorous. Preaching was superb at the end of the service. The congregation burst forth with Psalm 150. It was all new to me, and I could hardly refrain from laughing. Read Psalm 150 and compare or contrast what the psalm commands and what the covenanters did not do. Not that I wish to ridicule the covenanters. I wish other denominations were half so good. Notice what Clark is saying. He, he thinks that he has refuted the entire argument by a simplistic appeal. He's grinning like a Cheshire cat so large he can't even spit out the words of the argument because it's so self-evidently against our position. The Psalms themselves speak of instruments and call upon the, God, the people of God to sing with them. But it's truly astonishing you would get that argument from a Presbyterian. After all, if you permit that argument to have its place, if that argument really does provide a principle of interpreting the Psalms and applying them and what they prescribed in the New Covenant era, you will also get sacrifices, burnt offerings, altars in churches, worshiping in the Jerusalem temple, binding uh, sacrifices with cords to horns of altar, sprinkling with hyssop and liturgical dance, and the list goes on and on. And so I would ask my Presbyterian friends who would appeal to Psalm 150 for using instruments in worship, I would ask them one thing. Will you permit liturgical dance as well? Because if you will, and sacrifices to go with it, I promise not to argue with you anymore. It is very obvious that is no justification. And the way to refute it is by reading the Psalms within the context of the scriptures. The Old Testament was painfully clear when the instruments were used. They were used within the sacred space. They were used by typological priests. And they were used in inseparable connection with typological sacrifices. In the New Testament, you're very clearly told that those sacrifices and shadows and ceremonies have been fulfilled and set aside. And that the form of praising God now is the fruit of the lips singing thanks to his name. Very easy to refute 
this extremely shallow and superficial grasping at straws argument. There's no need to bring up any other objections because they're all worse than those. What we have, people of God, is no command at all, no warrant at all for using instruments in the public worship of God. And what that means is we must content ourselves with what Scripture requires. As we close our message this morning, I'm going to quote from the words of the 19th century Scottish historical theologian, William Cunningham, who helps us see what the issues at stake are. He says, Men under the pretense of curing the defects and shortcomings, the nakedness and barrenness, attaching to ecclesiastical arrangements as set before us in the New Testament, have been constantly proposing innovations and improvement in government and worship. People of God, that is the issue. Embarrassment over what the Bible requires. That's what the issue is. A desire to cure the defects. May God help us to protect ourselves from this virus and this impulse to cure the defects and the shortcomings of Scripture. And may God fill our hearts with resolve to not being wiser than God, but to cheerfully and willingly and submissively and wholeheartedly worship Him in no other way than He has commanded in His Word. Let's pray. Almighty Father, May it be the desire of our hearts not to be wise, obnoxious, <laughs> smug debaters of this age, but to be those who want to please you and who want to worship you because we are your servants, your sons, and your disciples, and that we will want to know how to worship you. And that because we want desperately to worship you, our great King of kings and Lord of lords, in a way that actually glorifies you, we turn to the Bible because we have nowhere else to go. But Father, we pray that we would constantly bring our convictions about worship back to this great inspired touchstone and that we would willingly and cheerfully and wholeheartedly submit our practice to what you prescribe. And Father, we do pray that as we ourselves submit to you and worship according to your word, that you would also give us diligence and love of our brethren to point them back to the scriptures and to debate with them from the word of God, that we might be able to show them with care, and with love, and with gentleness what it is that you prescribe and what glorifies you. And may you, Father, be pleased to use them to cause there to be a great flourishing in biblical worship once again, which is according to your word. Hear us for Christ's sake. Amen.